Hello and welcome to 15 Minute Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. I'm one of your co-hosts for today, Brad Jugumadze, and I'm joined by Krithi Ravi. Hi everyone, this is Krithi. Thank you for having me back on the show, Farai. We are very excited to talk to you today about language, specifically language barriers and the impact that it has on healthcare. Both independently felt very strongly about this topic, and we're going to tell you a little bit about our own experiences as well as talk about the data so that you can get two different perspectives on the impact of language barriers on healthcare. So to start off with, for I, apart from English, what are the other main languages spoken in South Africa? I thought you were going to say something else and I was like, oh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Before I get to that, can I quickly ask you, Krithi, yes. what, what languages do you speak besides English? Ah, um, so I, um, English is my second language and my mother tongue is Tamil. When I went to school in India, I learned Hindi and I could speak Hindi very well. Um, I don't speak mm -hmm. it fluently now, but I can still understand and sort of semi-translate it. And I did French at school. Again, I used to be good, but then I didn't practice. So I'm not very good now. And what about you? I'm a very, I have a very similar story. So right now i would say that english is my first language it's the language that i'm most comfortable with mm. when i was actually born i came out of the womb speaking shona very proficiently so much so that when i initially went to school that's all i would speak and with time it kind of got filtered out to a point where i'm quite embarrassed i'm having to relearn to speak shona at school we learned afrikaans i would not say i'm a very fluent speaker I can get around and I, that's the case for a few other languages as well. A bit of Sibeni, Chivenda is quite similar to Shona in some regards. When I was at university, which we'll speak about a bit later, came into contact with people speaking Isi which I, yeah, no, I can't even put that um, anywhere on my list. I know very little of that, but yeah. Bringing me on to what you just asked me about now, in South Africa, as many of the listeners, not most, would know, we have 11 official languages. Oh, wow. Which, yeah, 11. So when you, when you brought up this topic, I was like, yep, you don't even know what you're getting into. Yeah. We have 11 official languages, of which Isuzulu is the, mo is the predominant language. According to Stats SA, 25.3% of the population speaks um, Zulu. This was um, the Stats SA report from last year, 2019. Next is Isi Kosa, 14.8. I hope you're paying attention to the clicks, Krithi, because you're going to have to learn these later. Okay. Um, after which is Afrikaans, 12.2% of the population speaks Afrikaans. Okay. And fourth is English, of which 8.1% of the population speaks English. Ah. Those are, yeah, those are the stats for people's first language. So language most commonly spoken in their household. English is the second most spoken language outside of the household with 15.6% of the population speaking it. And again, after Isizulu, where 25.1% mm. claim Isizulu as their second language. Mm. Yeah. So when, you, when we say official language, do you mean languages which are used in administration, you know, official documents are produced in them? So in South Africa, yeah. they're produced in all of these official languages, are they? So it's, that's essentially what should be happening. Mm. If you look on like official documents, you'll see clearly it's written that English is the official language um, mm. spoken in Parliament. Mm. But I think more in terms of the context, which we'll get to um, just now, mm. in terms of the constitution, mm. 
if someone is speaking any of these official 11 languages, they should be able to get help in whichever way they need to be, if that makes I sense. See. I see. Yeah. So that's embedded in, a, in the constitution. It's, it's the South African citizen's right. Uh, yes. To, okay. To their language, yeah. There's 34 other historically established languages, four of which are extinct Christian languages. So those other yeah. 34 languages, like there's no constitution necessarily protecting them. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, and the the people that speak these other languages are they native South Africans or people that have immigrated from elsewhere? The eleven official languages, yeah, are all South African um, native speakers born in South Africa. Whereas South Africa also is a bit more; it becomes a bit more complex, and I think this would be the case in a country such as the UK, mm-hmm. where there's a huge migrant population, like people like myself. So there's a large group of um, um, immigrants from Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique, especially, um, and Nigeria. So mm. other languages commonly heard um, around the hospital and in general is Shona. I see I hear Shona like almost every single day. Chichewa from Malawi, Portuguese from Mozambique. Mozambicans also speak Chitsonga is um, their other official languages, which is one of the official languages of South Africa. So that helps in some regard. I see. Hmm. So the in the UK, unsurprisingly, uh, English is the main language for 92% of it, it, the sort of uh, the data is coming from this body called the Office of National Statistics, and they look call the population usual residents. So I thought that okay. was a very interesting term to use for the population. I'm not sure particularly if it uses, uh, if it includes you know asylum seekers, you know undocumented migrants people like that who are very very likely to have other language needs anyway so english is the main language for 92 percent of usual residents and of the remaining eight percent who had a different sort of main language the majority could speak english well or very well and a lot of Mm -hmm. these sort of the people in this majority spoke other european languages such and you know finnish things like that Less than 5% of the population in all local authorities had a main language other than English and didn't speak English well or at all. So they had Mm. what we would call limited English proficiency. And the five local authorities with the highest proportions of this specific population were all in London. And these uh, communities included the gypsy traveller communities, Pakistani communities, so those that spoke Punjabi, as well as other languages called Pahari, Cantonese communities, Yiddish, Bengali, Romani, Turkish, Latvian. So we've got a mixture of Eastern European, Middle Eastern, South Asian and East Asian languages. Um, yeah sort of all all combined together and i thought it was particularly interesting that a, a lot of these communicate uh, communities were concentrated in in london because what that highlights to me is the different language needs of different parts of the uk but also that if you were a person from this community living outside of london then you were probably very very lonely actually um, very true but is it not kind of because of i think when you when someone is migrating from another country mm. it's almost in a you're migrating out of a sense of need. Exactly, for opportunities. For, looking for yes, economic opportunities. Yeah. And if yeah. you're going to go to the UK, then you're looking to go to London because that's where you kind of think things are happening. Because the same thing with South Africa. People, the high concentration of migrants would be in Johannesburg and Cape Town. Not to say that other places mm-hmm. might not um, 
have migrants coming in, but the needs would be different. And it would, again, you'd, it would make sense where you start to see these migrants. So you'd see mm. people in the neighboring border towns more so than like a random coastal town with no opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's really, I, that's really interesting. I also wonder about, because I have met a few of a uh, few immigrants who have had to migrate outside of London because they've been pushed out by the higher rents. You know, they come seeking opportunity, yes. but then they, they're pushed out by the, by economic necessity and they seek opportunity elsewhere. And a lot of the time they, they are, they provide essentially cheap labor in industrial towns outside of London. But then that makes me wonder sort of how lonely they must be and how ill adapted the services in those areas are for their language needs. Definitely. Um, if that makes sense. So, uh, listeners, we were, it seems obvious, but the reason we wanted to talk about this topic was because having language barriers has a massive impact on healthcare. So in the UK, essentially, people with a main language other than English, who couldn't speak English well or at all, had a lower proportion of self-reported good general health than those with English as their main language or those with a main language other than English who did speak English well, if that makes sense. And this is from the sort of Office of National Statistics from a census in 2011, after you know, mainstream translation services were available and multiculturalism had very much taken root in the UK. And as Farai has mentioned, it is ingrained in the South African constitution, which sort of reflects the fact that it has a huge impact on the way that people go through life and in turn access healthcare. So how does it work, Fry, as a junior doctor in South Africa, when you're treating somebody who doesn't speak a language that you can speak yourself? Oh, I just wanted to, to add that point because it is it's very essential that um, what you mentioned, that in the South African constitution, there are rights protecting people to their language and to receiving healthcare mm. in the stated language. So in the patient's rights charter, it is said that the patient should have access to healthcare and health information in the language that they understand. And our National Health Act, Act 61 of 2003, states that the healthcare provider must, where possible, mm. asterisks, mm. inform the user in a language that the user understands and in a manner which takes into account the user's level of literacy. Mm. And then finally, in the Constitution of South Africa, Act 108 of 1996, mm. um, this act protects the rights of all citizens mm. to access healthcare services Mm. as well as participate in all aspects of life in the language of their choice. So this is, it's quite clear that why the constitution has these acts in place. It's very important that people are, I don't think it's not exploitation, but it's, it is, it's a right that people should be able to receive healthcare in a way that is suited towards them. Because if someone doesn't understand what is being done to them or what is being done for them, it's going to have a limited benefit in terms of, whether they actually accept the treatment they're receiving or if they're going to be able to carry on taking care of themselves after. The only problem is that we have to also consider reality. Mm. And in South Africa, with our 11 official languages, a large majority of the population speak at least two languages. Mm. Mm. But that still leads to some shortfall, (laughs) quite a large um, shortfall. And especially when you're... um, what I found very interesting, and I'll post this picture on, on our pages, mm. is that Stats essay showed that if you look at the different racial groups, the ability to speak more than one language is very limited. So with Black people, they are the group that's most likely to speak two to three languages. 
mm. with our colored population and our white population are only often able to speak two languages, which is normally Afrikaans and English. And then followed by that is the Indian Asian population, which is the most monolingual group, 92.1% of them speaking only English. I see. Okay. So people should definitely be doing better, but there is, it's, it's not a straightforward thing of just asking people to be better. It's not mm. a case of just giving someone a small pamphlet and asking them to quickly learn two to three different languages. Because I think, yeah, if you're able to grasp English, Afrikaans, mm. Isizulu, mm. Sipedi, and Isinkosa, mm. that's five languages. You'd mm-hmm. be quite, you would have covered your bases quite well. But not a lot of people have that capability. Myself, Definitely, I am not able to. I'm not even close as much as I do try. Sure, um, sure. Which brings me to what you asked now. What happens in the context of not only a junior doctor, but senior doctors, yeah. students as well. And what was, I think, encouraging for me, guiltily encouraging, mm. was I found research coming out from the US and mm. what they currently, what happens for them. And it's, I found it to be exactly the same solutions that we use which are acceptable but they're not optimal so mm-hmm. more often than not you're going to have to find someone a second uh, someone to become a translator for you mm-hmm. so that the role of the translator is either an accompanying family member friend administrative staff so it could be um, your clerks in your wards mm-hmm. it could even be a cleaner mm-hmm. it could be a patient next to you it could also be a nurse or another doctor so mm-hmm. yeah but more often than not you're going to have to find someone to help you translate or you're going to have to find a way to have this broken means of communication and hope that you can get somewhere. And how much in medical school do you learn about the impact of language and catering for people who have different language requirements? So I, I, I don't know if I have mentioned this to you, Prithi, but I, I studied at the University of Cape Town. Mm-hmm. I always give them props where I can. And kind of the joke that runs in the circles of the South African universities in terms of medicine is that we are, that UCT, University of Cape Town, is kind of obsessed with feelings and all the touchy things, subjects of our medicine. So they do pay quite a lot of attention to the impact of medicine. And not, I can't remember, even though it wasn't too long ago, but we did have quite, I don't want to say quite a bit, we had, we did have languages language um, classes Mm. throughout our studies Mm. for I want to say three years where we learned initially if you didn't speak Afrikaans you were given Mm. basic Afrikaans lessons Mm. and the same for Isikosa and then eventually after that primary foundation level then everyone had to continue learning to kind of communicate medical terms basic medical terms in those languages so even if you did speak that language you're still going to have to take these classes with everyone i can't remember if it was once or twice a week and then we'd have tests and stuff but it was very it was kind of trying to it was really it was trying to cover the basis it wasn't a comprehensive class that was going to make you into a proficient speaker in that language but that's because they i guess there's no there's not enough time i think we right. should definitely do an episode on extra classes that should be done in medicine because that would definitely be one of them but yeah as much as i can't even fault the university because they did make an effort whether it was good enough or not i don't think i'm in a position to say but there was an effort to try and help us to be able to speak to our patients absolutely absolutely i at university had one 15 minute 
session on how really? to speak to a patient with an interpreter. With an interpreter, okay. With an interpreter present. The impact of language barriers on healthcare were alluded to several times, but concrete steps that we could take and practically sort of being shown how to how to facilitate their healthcare was not covered. Yes. So I, I, I would say that that's something that a lot of medical students in the UK are very, very underprepared for. That's, it's yeah. very encouraging to hear that it's not the same in other parts of the world. And we have a lot to learn from other parts of the world, clearly. But then can I ask again, because you've said, you said the statistics, 92% of people, is it, that was that specifically London or throughout the UK? That was throughout the English. UK, throughout the UK, yeah. And then a further, how, what percentage could speak English as a second language? So the majority of people, so of the remaining 8%, the majority of them could speak English well or very well. So then if, in the UK, in your context, what, if they were to target increasing your language proficiency in another language, what language would be chosen? So What's not so much incre- increasing language proficiency as directing mm-hmm. us towards directing us towards services and approaches that could improve overall quality Uh of care for patients with language barriers if that makes sense so like you said it's probably not not practical for people to become experts in the languages themselves but to increase access to in to qualified interpreters language services is i think what we should be aiming towards but also it's it's not something that is covered very well at medical school at all how to have a proper conversation with an interpreter you know things like that um how to make sure um that you are uh talking to the patient and not the interpreter at all times how to build trust and rapport with the patient especially patients that may have not had very good experiences with healthcare systems before with a third party also present how to respect patient confidentiality you know, interpreters are also banned by confidentiality, but, you know, how to respect patient confidentiality in other situations when, you know, asking family members to interpret and, you know, how that may be inappropriate in some circumstances, things like that, I think are very, very undercovered in the medical school curriculum, essentially. Also from this, um, I read an article from the, uh, the AMA Journal of Ethics, and mm-hmm. they had an article titled Language Barriers in Patient Encounters. And besides the primary difficulties in, with language barriers when the patient Mm. and the healthcare provider don't speak the same languages. Mm. What they also alluded to was the importance of taking note of these encounters when you have to use an interpreter and noting how you should speak when there's no interpreter and it's just you and the patient. Mm. Because these miscommunications can Mm. happen even if you and the patient are still speaking the same language. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, I think the topic is even a bit bigger than just language barriers but more communication barriers absolutely absolutely i suppose it could be argued in the uk when you pointed out that sort of 92 percent do speak english and the majority of those who don't speak it very well why why should we you know think about interpreting services when the medical school curriculum is so packed already it's because health outcomes are worse for these people as we'll talk about sort of a little bit later in this episode and not only that they're also very high service users um and they a lot of them have had very, you know, so especially in the asylum seeker population and the undocumented migrant population have had not very good healthcare previously at all. So they come with a lot of physical and psychological comorbidity to, to, the, to the, yeah, to the UK. So yeah, when you do see somebody in, uh, where are you working at the moment again? Remind me. 
which department? I'm working. Oh, I've just moved. I've just moved a month ago. I'm working in orthopedics. Orthopedics. So, say someone yeah. comes into the orthopedic department and you have to clock them in, and they don't speak any of the languages that you do. How does that work? So, it's hope that there's someone near enough to me who's in the mood. That's also very important to mm, help them mm, mm. help with the interpretation. Mm. Luckily, with orthopedics, now that you mention it, mm. some they tend to always come in with someone, a family member, a friend, but. On top of that as well, mm. during the COVID-19 pandemic, mm. hospitals are limiting people bringing in family members and friends. So again, mm. now people are alone and you're like just hoping that you speak the same language. I actually had an encounter the other day before I started orthopedics where there was a patient who was speaking Shitsonga mm. and she was having abdominal pains. And I was trying to speak to her where I was trying to... Another solution that is mentioned in the literature was code switching i don't know if you if you read about that quickly no no i didn't so one of the solutions it's a makeshift solution which i think a lot of people in south africa definitely use they probably don't even know that they're doing it is code switching which is basically interchanging your language of choice with keywords of the patient's language i see that makes i sense. see i see Just so it's sort of a broken version exactly. of their oh sorry i interrupted Yes. No, 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 not at all. Um, exactly. A bro- like a broken, just broken sentences, mm-hmm. essentially. And for a lot of the time, I can get away with that quite well, I mm-hmm. think. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that I'm not leading to poor patient outcomes. But in this case, with this um, patient, I wasn't getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I went over to the nursing station and I asked if there's anyone that could help me. And the one nurse pointed me to the other nurse because she was saying that she couldn't help me. The other nurse could help me. This nurse wasn't in the mood that day. And rightfully and wrongfully kind of told me off about, actually, no, no, it didn't actually make sense now that I'm, I'm thinking about it. Sorry, I always have these in my mind. I've heard yeah, the story yeah, back to myself. Of- um, essentially, he was upset that with his language of choice, which was Tonga, I wasn't able to communicate. But other languages, such as um, Sisutu, then I would make more of an effort. That was what he was, he felt people do in general. So then I pointed out to him that, no, I'm terrible at all of these languages. I speak Shona, but whatever. Eventually came and helped me, but that's also something that has to contend with. And in the literature, it's also been documented that the barriers to this interpretation is that there's a bit of fit. They can be fatigued from people that are asked to help, particularly nursing staff, because it's always like, oh, please, nurse, come and help me. Oh, nurse, please come and help me. Um, it is, we're all here to help the patient, but I can't imagine it can be quite tiring at points. Mm. so yeah it's neither here nor there because we need to communicate with the patient they deserve to hear the correct information in their language of choice so we're going to have to find a way to to do that it's the same thing as when i if someone needs to speak to a patient that speaks shona i don't mind if you call me from a different ward because i know that for me personally i feel a lot better because i've seen a lot of cases where patients speak shona or chichewa and no one can speak to them at all and it just becomes very frustrating for the nurses and they become a bit short-tempered, not just nurses, doctors as well. Mm. Um, and it leads to very ugly patient interactions. So I prefer when I get called and then they, I'm able to just ask quickly, oh, what's the problem? Did this actually happen? And then everyone is in the know. But again, that's not something that happens every day. So maybe that's why I have a bit more tolerance for it. Um, did I even answer your question or did I just go on my own? No, time? no, no. It, you did, you did. I think 
basically what I if I if I can sort of repeat back to you what I sort of understood from your experience there is no formal language interpretation service available in South Africa is that right? yes and the, therefore, and therefore it sort of falls on the healthcare providers themselves to undertake opportunistic efforts to find interpreters yeah. in the clinical environment who may or may not be appropriate for the situation depending on like you said you know their their, their willingness to their their skill their experience interpreting you know because it's it's not just uh, do you happen to speak the same language the ability to convey the patient's words without adding any of your own nuance i suppose yes um, and that's sorry to interrupt you but that was also something that i read numerous times is that it's why there's a need to have a, a professional interpreting service or interpreter mm. because very often what happens if you use a relative even a staff um, a member of staff someone who's a clerk or a nurse who may not have the same command of medical information that one people can add their own interpretations of something mm -hmm. two they can hide specific information mm -hmm. if they find it in, um, inappropriate and three the third one was that sometimes it might just be completely wrong information mm -hmm. because they understand something as in a specific way mm -hmm. and that's not actually what is going on or in the language itself there's not that specific word to explain what you're trying to convey to the patient. Mm. It's just kind of the same as, yeah, first point. I, yes, do no, absolutely. And all of these lead to the fundament, uh, fundamental breakdown in the very first skill that we learn in clinical medicine at medical school, which is history taking. Yeah. You no, know? you say, how many times have you heard your lecturer say to you, you know, 90% of the diagnosis comes I was about to say, <laughs> we said all the time, all the time. Three episodes you know? ago, and I was about to ask you, is it 90%? Yeah. Yeah, so all I'm the time. bringing it down to like a two percenter stream because exactly. if you don't even get the primary presenting complaints, then you're essentially stuck just examining the patient. Exactly, exactly. And you don't know how to focus, focus your examination or investigation or direct them to the right specialty, which often is the, is the, is the problem. Yeah. One of my uh, seniors, when I used to work in obstetrics and gynecology, often said, when pregnant women come in with a uh, with with unwellness, you know they're feeling unwell. Which door they walk through makes a huge difference to their outcome, because if they have an obstetric problem, then coming through the door of the women's hospital places them in the best you know environment for care. But if they have a, a medical problem and they walk through the door of the women's hospital where there's not the right expertise and resources available, then it makes a massive difference. And vice versa as well. You know, if you walk in with uh, preterm labor or ec eclampsia into the emergency department, the same sort of situation applies. In the exactly. UK, if you want to speak to somebody that doesn't speak English very well, then there are formal interpreting services available. However, most of these are volunteer based. In my personal experience, the one time when I've had to use the telephone interpreting service, it was we had to give up actually. We had to give up because first of all, the telephone interpreter wasn't as skilled. It was a private company. The interpreting service was outsourced to a private company. The telephone interpreter yeah. was completely not proficient at all in the language that he professed to speak. And his what? understanding of medical, the sort of medical language was very, very unclear. We had to do it through a telephone because it was the COVID-19 pandemic and they couldn't come and visit in person. And it was, you know, it looked completely unprofessional and it completely destroyed my faith in the telephone interpreting system, I have to say. I have seen it used to be have a, in, in non-pandemic situations, we have a service called Language Line, 
whereby both the doctor and the patient talk on two ends of the same phone and there's an interpreter okay, on the side. To, I wanted to ask your hardware. So, okay, that makes sense. So language lines, so that's how it works usually. But with this telephone interpreting service, I had to have them on speakerphone on my mobile phone because the language line service was not available. And it was a complete disaster because the you know the quality wasn't assured the uh, and the patient's trust in us was essentially broken i have had fairly good experiences with in-person interpreters you know qualified in-person interpreters before but the mm -hmm. problem there of course is that um as i said you know they're mostly volunteer based or sometimes staff members volunteer but there are two problems with this one if staff members do volunteer there are the same issues of you know them you know omitting information or omitting the nuance of the information because especially because they might be tempted to in a healthcare environment they might say oh i think i know what this is i'm going to tell them what yeah. i think this is rather than what it actually is which would be very very tempting to do and to unlearn that behavior is a specific skill but secondly it causes a delay you know you can't get a hold of these people very quickly at mm. all how um, long was the delay roughly Usually you can't get people until the next day. So at least 24 what? hours, at least 24 hours, unless there's a staff member available who can do it that day. But then again, they have a job, you know, they might have to come in from another part of the hospital. Because that's what to... I was, sorry, sorry, continue. No, 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 that's not at all. So if you, in an emergency situation, if you need interpretation, you use their family, which is completely, yeah. I think it's not at all appropriate to rely on family members. I have seen children being used as interpreters. Mm -hmm which you know i can imagine causes psychological trauma because imagine being a child and feeling that you are responsible for conveying your parents distress or your family members distress to someone that spoke english you know what a what a burden to bear as a child um, and it it's, it's, it's quite something right i think our talks are very are very interesting because again when you're whenever you're going through something or whenever you're experiencing something you very really take the time to think about it or to have some to have some introspection so to me i can definitely see that it's not it's not appropriate or it's not the optimum thing to have mm. but i think that's only something that i've come to realize recently mm. with mm. very often and it's like i can just picture i can i'm hearing the voices i'm seeing myself doing it mm. very often i i can recount times when there's a patient there we're unable to communicate mm. um and everyone's like where's the family member who brought them in because we want to be able to get um, get to the bottom of the yeah yeah exactly. sometimes it's because of actually maybe the patient doesn't completely cope with mental but there's also many times when it's because of language issues yeah no i've done it too i've used family members too all the time actually but i've done it because of the fact that the other avenues weren't available and I think yeah. most doctors, uh, if not all, would prefer to use a qualified interpreter if, you could, if they could access the interpreters as easily as they could access a patient's family member. I think access yeah. is the issue as opposed to the fact that, you know, we prefer using family members instead. When I was a student, I actually remember in Cape Town, and I don't know how far it extends. I know definitely with some of the articles I was reading out, they, um, they spoke about having a qualified interpreter service. And this was at the Red, um, Red Cross Children's Hospital in Cape Town. Ah, very famous. And I actually remember seeing it, seeing all the various, so many languages that were advertised that you could, you could receive help in. Mm. In terms of other hospitals, I'm not sure if this service was extended across the province. But in terms of other, pro other provinces outside of the Western Cape, I am yet to hear of anyone saying that these services are, um, are available to patients, which is really sad. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And also, 
a lot of the times when I've tried to this telephone interpreting service, for example, it, I it was built up so much, you know, said, you know, we have all of these languages available. You can choose male or female interpreters, all of that. But the actual quality of it was awful. So I think in that case as, as well, quality assurance is, is very important. The but, suggestion in the, in the mm -hmm. article that I read was that, well, in the, in the South African context, that the Department of Higher Education should be providing quality interpreters. And then, so they'll be providing the service essentially, and then they'll be employed by the Department of Health. Mm. The problem comes in with the implementation of the individual provinces or hiring these people and distributing them equally because there's very rural places. So, um, where you do find lots of doctors, community service doctors working where they might really need it, mm. versus in a town or city where it's equally important, but maybe there's more patients, but they might have be able to speak English. So then what do you, like, how do you equally distribute the service? In addition to this, the, when I was reading different articles for this episode, what was clear was that the current literature available is limited mainly to three languages, actually two in, in, in a sense. And that would be, why I say two is because the, uh, the literature looks at language barriers between English and Afrikaans mm. and English and Isikosa. Mm. When I was reading for this episode, I saw the, the ethical problems that can arise with using family members and not just because of confidentiality, mm. but the awkwardness also with um, sensitive issues. If, for example, a husband is interpreting for, for his wife, if a child is interpreting for their father or mother, there's something that you might not want to speak about, things such as HIV status or your genitourinary symptom that you may be having. It can mm. all become very awkward. Absolutely. But also dangerous in some situations, actually. I can think of, you know, domestic yes. violence situations in which it's, yeah, in which it's actively exactly. harmful to involve family members. So uh, now we can talk a little bit about uh, the data that we have about the impact of limited English proficiency on health outcomes and I say limited English proficiency because this is the language barrier that has been the most studied across the literature as far I alluded to um, language barriers would mean something completely different in different parts of the of the world but English is the language that has been the most studied in terms of preventing access to healthcare. Overall across all disciplines of medicine be it pre-hospital medicine and emergency medicine primary care palliative care maternal newborn child health mental health cardiology research there has been a lot of literature documenting the um, adverse effect of limited english proficiency on health outcomes and the quality of health care received for example a uh, retrospective analysis of inpatient visits at three hospitals in Canada uh, between 1993 and 1999 showed that those who couldn't speak English very well stayed in hospital longer, about 6% longer it said overall, uh, 0.5 days, but for specific conditions it was a lot longer, so the differences in length of stay ranged from about 0.7 days to 4.3 days. And they claimed that there was no difference in in-hospital mortality found. But I would argue that just increased length of hospital stay means a lot. You know, it's not a soft outcome as such. The emergency department is one of the places in which impact of language proficiency, uh, English language proficiency on healthcare has been studied a lot. And a lot of this work has come specifically from the, from the U.S., and over different retrospective cohort studies from uh, admissions 
to EDs in Boston and New York City, they found that patients who had reduced English language proficiency were more likely than English speakers to have unplanned revisits and they were also more likely to receive diagnostic tests such as x-rays or ultrasounds and then be admitted to the hospital. One other study found no difference in 72-hour return visits. Um, what hasn't happened is a sort of systematic review and meta-analyses of all of these ED admission retrospective cohort analyses. But the theme of the theme of uh, adverse health outcome and increased healthcare service use is quite consistent and it's very, very obvious. I think one of the most interesting studies for me from the emergency department is was a study looking, an observational study, so they spent 47 hours observing patients with reduced English language proficiency going through the emergency department. And what they found was really interesting. They found that the best adherence to professional interpreters occurred during the triage and the initial assessment stage, but the poorest use of professional interpreters was uh, seen during subsequent evaluation treatment tasks like medication administration, obtaining imaging, taking blood samples, collecting uh, sort of observations of vitals, follow-up examinations. Now, I don't know about you, Fry, but when I see a when I see a patient, it's not a, an unwell patient. It's not always the initial assessment, but the trend that they go through which helps me determine the appropriate course of management, and not just me, but my seniors and the team as well. So it's sort of quite shocking to me that it seems from this study it, that we use interpretation services in emergency departments for the first part, you know, to make our jobs easier. We want to get mm. them through the ED, give them a diagnosis, admit them, you know, uh, write up a plan as quickly as possible so that we don't, you know, breach targets or things like that we have in the UK. So we have a four hour target for emergency department days for patients. But oh think, wow! Yeah, I know, but it, it you know the um, nice. that's completely other to separate topic. But the impact of that on healthcare quality is much debated. But it is sort of a point of concern that once that initial sort of assessment is over and done with, we don't actually use interpretation services for the part which might actually tell us the most about the patient's level of unwellness. You know, mm. in the subsequent evaluation and treatment. So I think overall use of interpretation services even might not be a um, good marker of quality of care but we need to specifically look as this study has, has done at where in the healthcare process interpretation services are and are not being used. Why do you think that is? I think why, it's just like, why is the emphasis on the beginning part? Is it like I think once you know what you think? Yeah. It's, I'm just being super cynical. I'm just thinking when you get in the ED, the ED doctors and the ED team staff want to just, you know, assess you, figure out what's wrong and admit you to the appropriate team as quickly as possible. And so in order to make their lives easier, the easiest part to use interpretation services would be at the beginning when they're trying to put the history and they're oh, trying yes. to gain consent for examination. But that's just me being cynical. Uh-huh. No, but I think it, it is. It's, I think it's the truth. <laughs> because once you kind of, once you think you know what's going on, then why do you need to keep talking to the patient? Yes. You're going to take blood, you're going to maybe do an, an, well, you're going to examine them again the next day, you're going to send them for loads of tests, but the important part is what's going on, what's the diagnosis, and after that, who cares what the patient has to exactly, say? Exactly, you know exactly. Even and if honest... the patient comes for a follow-up clinic date, here's the diagnosis, yep. uh, okay, you can't really answer me, okay, you're going to do your bloods and we'll see you in two weeks for the results. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, yes, I think this is sort of 
using interpretation services to make our lives easier as doctors and not to actually deliver healthcare, which seems counterintuitive, but perhaps not surprising. So then that's when it's as much as I'm, I'm, I'm basically the, the, the stranding example of hypocrisy in this case, but then is that not why it should be important that doctors are able to primarily speak to the patient? Because then the dynamic changes as soon as you're able to openly communicate. I think when you have the interpreter, mm. whether it's a professional service or if it's a nurse, another doctor, mm. a cleaner, but it's just that extra effort to you completing your task. And if you have 10 patients waiting after you, it, that's taking the time to now go and ask someone else to come and help you. Yeah. And if you want to do it properly again, then you have to make sure that you are taking all these ethical principles into consideration when trying to communicate through the interpreter. Mm-hmm. It's just an effort. Whereas if I know I can speak to this patient primarily, mm-hmm. then I'm just going to ask them quickly. Because mm-hmm. it is, if you are able to speak to the patient, mm-hmm. it is quick and easy and it does make your life actually a lot, it makes it a lot better if you're just like, oh, please can you move onto your back so I can examine you quickly and make sure that this mass has been reduced or make sure that you don't actually, this pain is gone. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Um, because it's it's second nature to you. You don't to, even to have to think about to them it. By yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be the ideal situation that we, you know, recruited healthcare providers according to the language needs of our patients. But that's, I just don't know. I don't think that's going to happen, especially in the UK. I just don't think <laughs> that there will be appetite to learn Punjabi or Pahari or remind you know it, it just just i don't think it's going to happen and i think we just need to a lot of the stuff that comes as quote unquote second nature was not second nature to us when we started you know going on to the wards as medical students they became mm. second nature because of the fact that we learned to do them you know examining a patient's chest you know asking them to move taking blood putting in cannulas so somehow amidst all of that it needs to become second nature to us to use interpreters so i have a, I have a quick thing i want to tell you Mm-hmm. Again, because the majority of our listeners are still in South Africa, they all know very well about this. But South Africa currently has a program um, that's been running for oh, very long. Over, over, I'm going to be conservative, I'm going to say over 10 years, but I think it's actually dating back to at least 2002. Mm-hmm. I want to say a bit longer. Um, and it's, the program is the Mandela Castro. Essentially, we, have, we sent South African students to Cuba to, to train there. Right. And then once they do their time there, then they come back. But what is interesting is that when they go to Cuba, the first year is spent learning Spanish. You don't do any medical training whatsoever. If anyone has done that program and they would like to correct me, but that is what I understand what I've been taught. So you just learn Spanish. Then only can you go on to learning about all the different medical topics and stuff, also in Spanish. So I don't know if it's purely just so that you can understand your medical education in Spanish Mm. Mm. but I think that it's also largely due to the fact that you're going to be required to speak to patients so when they come back it's actually a very interesting dynamic to see that a lot of these students come back with their own first language mother tongue Mm. which would be any of the South African languages which is normally not English they go from that Sutu, Venda, Tosa, whatever then they learn Spanish and Spanish essentially becomes their second language. And English is then kind of third or whatever. Mm. But do you understand what I'm saying? I do, I and do. So the taking advantage of, you know, sending 
not sending, sorry, training medical students in different environments has a secondary benefit of enabling them to improve their language proficiencies. Yeah, well, it's also, it's just the kind of requirement when you mm. go to another country that you're expected to know that language. And that's the same thing as um, I had an uncle who's late now, but my aunt was telling me that he went to go and train in Congo a few years back and he was expected to know French, to speak French fluently. And I kind of, I don't know if it's a lost art upon the current generation of medical doctors, myself, <laughs> I'm looking directly at myself, yeah. but to take that on and learn another language because it's important to be able to speak to your patients yourself. Interpreters are good, but especially in a South African context, mm. it's something that is definitely a far, far way off and it's not going to be happening anytime soon. Mm. More likely than not, it's, it would be easier to learn the languages yourself, which mm. a lot of people are able to do. Not everyone, mm. not enough people, but it's definitely possible. Sorry, one more thing before I let you speak again. I was self-loathing and I was trying to find any research on why what makes it hard for some people to learn additional languages. Oh, no. My, yeah, I went down that road. My sister's very good at, um, at learning different languages. I do not have that gene. There are many articles online that are telling me that it's that, that is a myth that we do not have genes or specific things that make us able to learn languages better than other people. But one thing psychologically is that when you put too much emphasis on learning another language, mm. that also forms a barrier to learning. And if you think about it, with children, they're able to, very young children are able to learn languages very easily. Mm. And it's because they're not too focused on all the nitty gritties and the sentence structure and the grammar. Mm. It's just going out and learning. You just try and through trial and error and imitation, they learn. Mm. Whereas when you get older, the older you get, you get bogged down by trying to make sense of things in a very analytical way. And that has been seen as a barrier to learning another language. That's very interesting. I don't know. I feel like medical educationists should listen to this podcast, Fry. So, <laughs> if there are any medical, budding medical educationists among, amongst our listeners, take note. We would really appreciate your help with this. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not even the objective things, though. So, I was looking at data at sort of what we would consider very subjective. Uh, no, let me swap that. It's not only just the subjective complaints, like pain, for example, where it makes a difference. A lot of what we would consider more objective complaints, like sepsis, you know, they did a study, a retrospective cohort study of sepsis admissions over four years at tertiary centre, I think in a high income country. And limited English proficiency was associated with 30, 31% increased odds of mortality after adjusting for illness, severity, comorbidities and, and other baseline sort of characteristics, including race. That's which would too much. In effect, yes, 31% increased odds of mortality from sepsis. You know, we've got a... Um, uh, sort of almost a slogan here called the sepsis six you know there's every you ask any medical student what's the sepsis six and they'll be able to give it to you off by heart and what does that sound like you know, just for my own. <laughs> you're learning so instead of give three and take three so you give oxygen fluids antibiotics and you want to aim to give the antibiotics within one hour of recognition and you take blood cultures ideally before you've given them antibiotics uh, you take a lactate to see if they've got end organ sort of compromise and you take their urine output to make sure you're hydrating them enough but yeah it's a sepsis six and uh, you know could it be sepsis there are so many slogans about sepsis all over and i i would think of it as a very sort of subject uh, objective uh, thing a very bad infection 
but 31% accessible tonsils, that's ridiculous. And yes. in cardiology services, you know, people having stents and balloon angioplasties for STEMIs, mm -hmm. so um, ST elevation heart attacks. This study was performed at a multi-centre tertiary healthcare service in Melbourne, which is quite multicultural, and looked at 650 patients of whom 98 had limited English proficiency. And interestingly, the languages that those patients spoke were Vietnamese and Greek mostly. So it just goes to show that you can't aim for, you know, specific language yeah. proficiencies. There's so many. And it's just going, like you said, you're going to have to think about other innovative medical education strategies to get people get people to think about the cultural implications and the healthcare implications of speaking a different language. Anyway, in this study, limited English proficiency was an independent predictor of symptom to door time. If that, what mm. they mean, meant was symptoms to the onset of, for example, chest pain uh, to door of the, the hospital, and then therefore led to an increase in symptom to revascularization time. Mm -hmm. um, so as a comparison, it was the, the time total ischemic time. So defined as the time from symptom onset to first balloon inflation in a coronary artery was 281 minutes in the uh, less proficient group versus 203 minutes in the group that could speak English well. So that's 80 minutes, that's an hour and 20 minutes of delay. And they show that there was no difference in in-hospital mortality, but I would argue that an hour and 20 minutes in uh, of increased time to kill your cardiac cells leads to lots of morbidity. You know, it would yes. be unimaginable that these people had a lower quality of life, more limitations, higher degree of heart failure, more complications post MI than than people that spoke English well, and yeah, it's just it's um it's boggling, mind boggling, and I think a lot of the time ethnicity and language are often conflated. But I'm just going to mention one last study which made me think. So in the US again, they did a study mm -hmm. of <laughs> parent reported quality of healthcare received by around ten thousand children in Medicaid managed care plans. And they did this across six states in the US from 1997 to 1998. And I, I realized this is a while back now, but um, racial or and eth uh, ethnic minorities had worse reports of care than um, white patient groups. And among Hispanics and Asians, these language barriers had a larger effect, negative effect on reports of care than race or ethnicity. You know, whether this applies still, I'm not sure because our listeners will not be ignorant of what's going on in the world right now with regards to racial inequality. But I think this is still a very, very significant finding. That is very, very significant. I'm actually paging through. There was something I wanted to add. If you can just give me two seconds to find it. In one of the studies that I found from the Red Cross Children's Hospital, one of the important findings from the survey that they gave out to parents um, of, of patients was that language and cultural barriers rather than structural and socioeconomic barriers, were seen as the major barriers to the effective participation in healthcare rendered to their children. So I... I wow, okay. That's consistent then across different yeah, countries. It really is. And again, another point. You mentioned quite a lot of... You mentioned the six S's of sepsis, and you also mentioned the studies with regards to myocardial infarctions. And for our listeners, just know that we are coming back very soon with our episodes on core medical topics. So don't think we've stopped that completely. And then back to my other point was that 
one thing that was found also, which was quite consistent across all the literature that we've been coming across, and I think it's very significant in South Africa, and I'm quite sure with the population groups that you've mentioned, the minority groups in the UK, Kuthi, is that language and culture are also inextricably linked as well. So just being able to speak to a patient in, one, in their language of choice is one, is one aspect of the care. But tied to that is their culture as well. And if you don't understand the culture associated with the patient and their language, then that can also be a major barrier to their care. Why I say that in South Africa, it's very, very often where a patient will, become, will come into the hospital and they'll have a specific string around their waist or their hand or specific markings denoted from a traditional healer. And we might be able to speak to them and ask them what's going on, but I think there's a deeper understanding that needs to be gained from the patient's Absolutely. context. Absolutely. And not just being like, oh, okay, cool, they went to a traditional healer because this happened and now they're here. No big deal. But Absolutely. understanding why, what drove them to going to the traditional healer, what the specific symptom complex means in that person's culture. And like, like I said, it's not just in a South African context. It can be seen across the world. So being able to communicate is one aspect, but to understand is a completely different thing. And then I think that will allow us to understand better what is going on with patients and better able to help them when they present to hospitals. And I mean, at the heart of all of this is also that the link, you know, language is not just a communication thing, but, you know, language is culture almost is ethnicity you know it's it's mm -hmm. for example i my my ethnicity is indian but i culturally share nothing with other north indian people and i share more with other tamil sri lankan people culturally exactly. yes and you know it, it just has a i think it is one of the reasons why i'm so keen for um, us to have raised awareness as medical professionals of the impact of language barriers on healthcare is that I don't think it's just as simple as communication in itself. Communication is a mm -hmm. huge part of it, um, but it's not all of it. Um, I think people that don't speak um, the majority language used by a health system feel the otherness. And I can imagine that the otherness leads to lots and lots of difficulties, actually. So finally, just as a sort of closing thoughts, how do you feel that this, this is a sort of leading question, but how do you feel that the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, what, what do you think the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is going to be on what we've talked about? So the impact of language barriers on healthcare, slightly leading. <laughs> you say it's leading, but I'm trying to think, hold on, just give me two seconds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My mind is like, you know, 500 places, how it goes out. Um, can't you share and then I'll share after you? I don't know why. I just of course, yeah, yeah. Way. So I am worried, actually. I'm very, very worried about what we've talked about because I can see it getting a lot worse because of the, the move towards telemedicine in, in the post-pandemic. Well, we're not actually post-pandemic, but uh, sort of uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic and after it. And I know telemedicine has a lot of advantages, especially for people with sort of accessibility needs. But as I explained previously from my sort of personal experience, getting a telephone interpreter on the phone to talk to a patient was an absolute disaster during the pandemic because we couldn't get a real life interpreter in. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there are studies which show, for example, there was a really big study looking at a systematic review and meta-analysis 
of um, the uh, of studies looking at the effectiveness of interventions improving type 2 diabetes outcomes amongst patients um, who didn't speak English very well in North America. And these interventions were associated with a statistically significant reduction in hemo uh, HbA1c, but the, there was huge variation in their effectiveness. And the most effective ones were the multi-component interventions delivered face to face. And we've also talked um, quite recently in our sort of maternal mortality podcast about worsening health outcomes for black and minority ethnic women in the in the UK and the US and other sort of high income countries. And one of the EMBRACE reports, which is the UK's reports of maternal mortality and morbidity, said, and I quote, uh, this, this report came out in 2017, quote, previous reports have repeatedly commented on the need to ensure that family members are not used as interpreters. In one oh. instance, a woman whose first language was not English became acutely unwell two days after delivery. While her care for maternity and mental health staff was appropriate, family members were used as interpreters and once external interpreters were involved, it became clear that she was more symptomatic than previously thought. And also repeated embrace reports highlight the um, in contribution, the significant adverse impact of domestic violence on maternal mort uh, mortality mm. and morbidity. So looking at all of this, I think it's going to get worse. I think in our move towards telemedicine, we need to keep in mind the needs of those that don't speak English or the majority language used by the health system, because I think they yes. need to suffer. That is definitely true. In South Africa, I think I've mentioned this before, but there has been a lot of resistance to implementing telemedicine in our healthcare sector. But because of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of restrictions have been lifted and it was kind of like gunso. And yeah, it is effectively now being used. And it definitely does have its advantages, but it needs to be monitored and evaluated as, as it is rolled out. So these are very important considerations to take note of. Thank you for pointing that out. I don't think I would have really thought about that. I think I particularly thought about that because of my really bad experience, experience. Um, yes. looking after this patient. But yeah, I guess I, I, yeah, I've just independently of this podcast been thinking about that quite a lot, uh, which is why I was really super happy that we were able to discuss it. Um, Can I close with one last um, example? Please. Um, and this is actually a, so we spoke about the telemedicine, that's one technological advance, possible hindrance, but we have yet to see. But we once, when I was rotating in pediatrics, I was working with one of the other doctors in my rotation. And there was a mother that was from Malawi originally and spoke Chichewa primarily, did not speak any English at all. And she now delivered she delivered a baby, I think it was maybe three days, and she wasn't being discharged. My, my colleague came up to me, or oh, I was going to see what they needed to do, like what way I could help. And this was a constant problem that the child had been having hypoglycemia for the past two days when they could have been discharged already. Oh, wow. So tried to speak, couldn't get anywhere, left it. Next day we came back, same thing. As people do, they try to speak broken English or speak speak loudly to try and I don't know magically make the patient understand the language that they're trying to speak that they speak then we decided to use google translate to tell the mother that no she needs to be feeding her child x amount of times and whenever the child is hungry then she should breastfeed mm. so we went on to google translate and I think we translated I think two sentences mm. not even nothing more and the next day we looked at the glucose readings and they're all perfect and we're able to discharge the mother and her child. So that was 
something that was very positive and I think that we shouldn't also we should embrace technology the way we can obviously be careful but there are opportunities to use um, technology to our benefit to help people that do not speak the same language as us so yeah absolutely absolutely so perhaps instead of ending on the very pessimistic note <laughs> that I was leading towards, in the move towards in embracing technology to address health challenges that we're seeing during this pandemic, perhaps this is an additional challenge, you know, that can be addressed with this newfound momentum. Exactly. Right. So thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of 15 Minute Medicine. We hope that you really enjoyed it. We definitely have. I can't see how long we've been talking for, but it's been very long because there's just so much to speak about and we could really go on for much longer. I have pages just waiting. But thank you, Kriti, for joining. Thank you so much for having me. And please share this episode and other episodes with those around you, colleagues, friends, family. We really hope that you enjoy what we're doing. If you have any suggestions, please just let us know. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, Our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts as well as SoundCloud. And yeah, this is Team Med of Medicine. We try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. Thank you very much.